Welcome to the Saddle Hunter Podcast, where all the cool kids go to hang out. Now, here are your hosts, Greg and Scott. And it is my favorite time of the month, time for another Saddle Hunter Podcast episode, and I am joined with my best buddy, Scott. Scott, how in the world are you doing, man? I'm not doing bad, Greg. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Doing fantastic. Uh, life has been a little crazy lately. How about you? Yep. Same work, family, keeping us busy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's just that kind of time of year, you know, after the, the, after the new year, things just always pick up for work and we stay busy and swamped and had so many things I want to do. Deer season ends and then it's time to scout, you know, you want to Especially here in the south, I want to get my scouting done before it gets hot and and the bugs come out and then it turns to fishing season when the weather gets nice. So I, you know, I just, I feel like uh, I have a lot to do and not a whole lot of time. Yeah, I, un- I understand. Actually, once, basically once gun season kicks in, in our state, I have to motivate myself a little extra to continue hunting whether it's bow hunting or if i decide to go gun hunting um at that point i'm actually looking forward to next season already and and scouting i'm I'm constantly looking at maps of all the public lands and plotting where i want to go to next um i actually i have maps marked up all over google earth and in um base camp on my mac i have i have hundreds of spots and i just don't have enough time to go scout them all yeah i feel the same way i mean I love scouting. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. And, uh, it just keeps me pumped for next season. Well, you know, it gets me pumped at the end of this season Mm and has me looking forward to next season already. And, and what I'll do a lot of times, uh, there's a lot of public land right around where I, uh, where I work. So for lunch, a lot of times I'll skip lunch and just go to a close by area and, and just kind of scout the woods. I take my phone, mark all the spots, all the rubs, all the scrapes from last year. I, I mark all the pinch points, uh, you know, standard stuff, probably the same as you do. And then mark, you know, possible uh, trees, possible uh, saddle locations. And then I'll come back the next time and, and prep the tree or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But I end up doing a lot of that at lunchtime. That's nice. I wish I could squeeze that in, but unfortunately I can't. It is nice, and there's this one spot that uh, I had been wanting to check out all last season. I never got a chance to go back there, and so last yeah, last week I went and walked it, and uh, it's not a real big area, maybe maybe 15 acres, something like that. I don't know. I'd, I'd, I need to do the math and, and, and check, but I, it's not big, 15, 20 acres probably, and it's a bow hunting only area. So I walked it, uh, a, a huge portion of it is a swamp, uh, but the high ground I walked, I found some rubs, some scrapes, nothing that, you know, got me super excited, mostly small trees, low, low rubs, you know, generally associate with young deer. Uh, so nothing crazy. And then I'm talking to a guy that I work with today and he's like, oh man, you wouldn't believe you know, a couple nights ago, I go driving down, you know, by this spot. He didn't know that I'd been looking at hunting it. And he said, there was this huge buck on the side of the road. He said, it was so big, I stopped and threw it in reverse and put my bright lights on and 
and hit it and it was just a monster and i said really so i got him to point out exactly where it was on a map and sure enough i mean it's the same exact area that i walked through and just didn't find any real big buck sign so uh maybe i missed it or maybe the buck was just happened to be there you know and maybe he's not living in this particular little block mm-hmm. maybe he's living right close to it and he was just because uh, he was out in the open this was at night obviously and he was feeding so maybe the Maybe, you know, he's just right place, right time. But I'm going to go back and, and do another uh, good circle of the property and see if I can find maybe where he's coming in and out. Because a big buck like that, if it's as big as he said it was, there's going to be some sign somewhere. Uh, I just got to find it. Yeah, and then just uh, scout that spot for, like, the best rut locations. If there's a big one like that in the area, even if he's not, you know, staying on that particular piece, maybe you can at least catch him um, coming through when he's on his uh, feet more often. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there is a there is a spot kind of – there's a pinch point. There's a swamp to the east and the west, and there's a small little ridge. I mean, I, I, I say it a ridge. I mean, it doesn't even show up on an elevation map because it's maybe 10 feet higher uh, than the swamps around it. It's, I mean, a very small little rise in elevation – but you can tell it's a kind of a highway between these two swamps. And I marked it on the on my app. And uh, that's probably where I'll go uh, and set up a tree. And I think I'm going to take a camera back there and place it somewhere close to the edge of that swamp where all the thick stuff was. Where if there is a big boy using the area, he's going to be transitioning through that real thick stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exciting. It's always nice to know there's a big one where you're hunting. It is, it is. And then uh, I also have done some scouting on, I don't know if you remember, but uh, I was kind of chasing this buck I call the marsh grass buck. uh, And I kind of chronicled that a little bit on the forum with Mm -hmm. some posts and even a couple videos about where I was chasing it. And I didn't get to chase him as much as I wanted to, uh, just because my late season got so busy and I really didn't even get to get out that much after November. Um, but I went back in there with, uh, my new climbing method, the, the bolts and the woodpecker drill or the tree hopper drill, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the hand drill. I went in there after him and I found a bunch more sign and I got pictures of him where he at least made it through, uh, late October into November. So, uh, hopefully he made it through the season and I, I don't know if he did or not. That's still fully November, December, January. So almost three months left of the season from the last picture that I got of him, but he is a fine buck for our area. So, uh, I'm hoping that he made it through. I found a couple of more trees that I'm going to prep and be ready to go after him next September. Yeah, that's awesome. I saw a picture. He's a nice buck. Yeah. He's definitely a nice buck, um, and for our area in the swamps, you know, uh, I, I think he's got a pretty good chance of making it. I had a camera out there for three months. This is, you know, purely public land, and and it's way back there on public land, but still public land, and I never got a picture of another person, um, and I had a camera, like I said, for about three months back there, so during the prime time. So nobody walking through nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a good sign. So maybe he's not getting too much pressure. And like I said, he is surrounded by swamp and marsh. So it'd be real easy for him to slip away. The pictures I got of him were worth a dough. Uh, so I think maybe, maybe, 
the rut is going to be my best chance of getting a crack at him next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably a good chance. If he's made it through that um, to get that big, he knows how to survive back there for sure. Yeah. What about you, man? What have, uh, what have you been up to lately? Uh, I think I've been out hunting couple times since we last spoke um i did i actually put my first all day sit of the year in in january um usually i have a lot more of them by the time um this time of year rolls around but with my my kid and then being a sick through the fall and a crazy work schedule I just didn't get to put any all-day fits in. I, I put a couple in from like 8 a.m. after I dropped my daughter off at daycare to dark, but that was it. So I had a spot I actually set up, um, did a little scouting the week before, and I set up a spot. I, I got in there before dark. I actually was busting some turkeys off the roost, which kind of uh, startled me. I wasn't expecting that. And then um, I sat up there all day, and I didn't see a deer, even though I had seen one at noon in the five minutes I was in the tree the week before. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. But uh, the way my dad and I always talk about, we call it, you got to put your, your put your time in to gain your points. So I was fortunate enough to shoot my buck the last week of December, so I got to put my time in before I can uh, get another one. Uh, yeah. You know, I didn't do a single all-day sit this season. It it can get tough to put the time in when uh when life gets busy as as you and I both know. Yeah, you know when I got back from my public land trip to Illinois in November, I just it was kind of like the world was conspiring against me after that to get any real serious time in the field. I just I didn't get to hunt much from from late November through the end of our season, and which is mid January here in Georgia. I just. I, you know, part of it was, uh, was motivation. You know, I went to Illinois and I made a bad shot on that buck and it kind of got me a little bit messed up in the head. And, uh, I just, I just wasn't feeling it. And then it seemed like every time that I was ready to go back out and get, get, you know, back in the saddle, you know, literally and figuratively, uh, something would come up with work or family or something and it, it just didn't work out. So I kind of had a slow season after that trip to Illinois. Uh, I can understand how you're feeling because most seasons up until before we had our child, I would hunt like 75, 80 days a year, like almost every day after work. And by the time the end of the rut rolled around, I was burnt out. Like by the time... In December, you know, I, I don't have enough time to hunt in December anyway with um, basically just being able to hunt on Saturdays. But um, I wasn't that even that motivated to go out because I'm just burnt out from hunting almost every day during both season. Mm-hmm. So, so that's yeah. one thing I'm t- I am taking going forward with having a child is that I'm not hunting as much um, during the early season as I used to. But I am trying to make um, all of my hunts throughout the entire season much more um, effective hunts. How about that? There you go. That's a good tactic. Definitely a good tactic. So definitely just learning and adapting to uh, new life situations. How about that? That's right. You know, and and uh, I'm about to get serious about pig hunting, you know, really in combination with scouting. Go out to the public land take the 22 mag or my bow, walk around, find some spots for next season, 
shoot a pig or two. Uh, and then right after that, it's going to be turkey season. So uh, it's right around the corner. So there's lots to look forward to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully shooting a pig myself. Uh, you are more than likely going to have an opportunity. I can promise you that. I've uh, downloaded a couple books on my Kindle app, and I've been reading up on on pigs to educate myself. So uh, I'm going after them with my bow. So I'm. It's it's been a uh, a goal of mine to shoot a pig with a bow someday. So I'm hoping next week I'll take care of that. That's good. That's good, man. It's it's, uh, it's going to be an exciting time for sure. And what what Scott's talking about is is let's see. As we post this, we're in the for as we record this, we're in the first week of February, and in the second week, really the third week, right, starts the fifteenth. So the third week of February is Saddle Palooza. Uh, we're doing a pig hunt in Georgia, and a lot of guys from SaddleHunter.com will be joining me and Scott down in uh, Savannah, Georgia, and we are going to shoot some pigs and eat a lot of barbecue and seafood. I am pumped. It sounds, it sounds amazing. What more could you ask for, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I've I've uh, locked in the campground and all the lo- and the uh, all the stuff that comes with that, and locked in the food. I got stuff ordered. It's going to be fun, man. I'm pumped. Yeah, I can't wait. And uh, counting down the days, really. I mean, it's less yeah. than a week. Less than a week away. It sure is. And and you know what else I'm pumped about? I'm pumped about our freaking guest tonight. We've got John Everhart that's going to talk with us about all things saddle hunting. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. We're uh, we're really I'm really pumped to have John on too. And uh, I mean, he's been hunting for a long time. He's been hunting out of the saddle for a long time, and I'm sure he's going to have a lot of good information to share with us. Yeah, I call John uh, the godfather of saddle hunting cuz He's been doing it for almost 40 years. Uh, I want to say like since the early 80s, he's been hunting out of a saddle and, you know, something like something crazy. I'm going to get it wrong, but something like 54 seasons he's hunted and he's taken like 58 or 59 uh, two and a half year old or older deer in Michigan, which is saying something for Michigan and one point in time, he held the state record, I think, in Michigan for the biggest deer. Uh, I think that was with his muzzleloader. But, yeah, the guy is just a stone-cold killer, and he knows how to get it done. I mean, written books. We've, you know, I know I've read the books, Scott. You've read the books, but Bro mm-hmm. Hunting Pressured Whitetails. And the guy just has a laundry list of accomplishments in the hunting world, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he really does. And, um I've been very fortunate to get to chat with him a lot of times. And like every time I talk to him, I just pick up another little tidbit of information. Um, and that really, that's the only way to get some of the stuff out of him is just to chat and pick his brain. And he, he's got, he, he probably has more information up. Th- he's probably forgot more information than most of, uh, most of us will ever know, but he's just so observant. Um, he's so meticulous and it's just a great opportunity to have him on here to share all his um, in particular, saddle hunting wisdom with us tonight. Yep, totally agree. And, uh, you know, let's quit talking about it and let's just get them on. Let's do it. And we have the godfather of saddle hunting, Mr. John Eberhart, on the line with us. How you doing, John? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, it is good to have you with us tonight. Scott and I have been excited about having you on the podcast. Well, I mean, 
for months and months. I mean, since before we even got the first episode recorded, I think, Scott, if you remember, we said, man, who is going to be our first guest? And we both said, like, in unison, like little kids, John Eberhart. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. Well, let's be honest. When you think saddle hunting, you think John Eberhart. I've been doing it a long time, since 1981. Hey, well, so why don't you talk about maybe kind of your your hunting, um, like how you got started in hunting, because not everyone that's listening to this podcast will know who you are, John. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them will, but for the, for the new folks that have never heard of John Eberhart, never heard that name before, Give us the quick elevator pitch, uh, how you got started in hunting and where you're from and all the basics. Okay. I'm from from Michigan. Grew up in southern Michigan and nobody in my family hunted. So uh, hunting was not, you know, introduced to me by uncles, any kind of relatives, parents. And I was walking by an archery shop when I was a young teenager, 13 or 14 years old. And I walked inside, it was in Ypsilanti, Michigan, a place called Ypsilanti Archery. And the owner of the shop, and this is back in the 60s, he was in there shooting what was called a PA round at the time, which is a 20-yard spot target, three-inch bullseyes. And this, this is all recurved longbow. Compounds were not out at that time. And I was just standing there watching this guy shoot. And I was always intrigued by whitetails. There was other kids in school that had went, you know, whitetail hunting with their parents up in the UP, Upper Peninsula. And I was watching this guy and he was like draining this three inch bullseye. And uh, he, he went down and to get his arrows and he was, him and I were the only two in the shop. And I'm just this punk kid. And he's coming back with his arrows. And I said, do you deer hunt? And he said, yeah, yeah, son, I deer hunt. This guy's in his forties probably. And I said, man, you must kill a lot of deer. And he said, son, and I think he told me this because I was the only one in the shop besides himself. He said, son, I've shot at six deer. And back then there wasn't a lot of whitetails in Michigan or, you know, there wasn't hardly any whitetails in Ohio, Iowa, all those states didn't have hardly any in agricultural areas. He said, I've shot at six deer. None of them were as far away as that target. And I've yet to hit the first one. And I was like, you mean you're draining this three-inch bullseye at 20 yards and you've shot at six deer closer than that and you haven't touched one? And he said, yeah. He said, when, I, when you put fur on it, I just lose it. I just get so excited and I've, sh- I've shot over every single deer I've, I've shot at. And I don't know, I just got so intrigued and I, I ended up buying a 40-pound uh, Ben Pearson recurve and then I... Worked my way up into a couple bear bows. I had a grizzly. Then I had a hunter, which is a 62-inch bow. And uh, I met this guy that was in his mid-30s, Leroy, and he took me hunting. And we we had some serious issues because he was in his mid-30s. He was a snaggletooth guy, and he hit me a few times because I did things he didn't like. He smacked me. and um, But I took it because he was my only way to go hunting. I didn't have a vehicle. So he would take me out on public land and we'd go hunting. And in fact, the very first deer I shot, I shot a doe on public land and he was actually pissed that I shot a deer. And when we gutted, it was a huge doe. When we gutted it, he propped it up against a tree and started target practicing at it. And I literally cried 
tears. I think I was 14. And uh, it was kind of weird because the way I shot that deer, Leroy had went in the swamp. He was hunting in the swamp. I was hunting outside of the swamp. And he told me, he said, this was a morning hunt. He said, when you get done hunting, you can come over here and sit on the outside edge of the swamp. Do not come in the swamp. You know, don't come in the swamp. I'll come out and meet you. So I went and I sat underneath this white pine, which had a bunch of dead branches on the bottom. You know, and so I had pine boughs over my head. And when Leroy was coming out of the swamp, he spooked this big doe out. Well, this big doe came out and she stopped like 20 yards in front of me broadside and turned around and looked back into the swamp at Leroy. She had no clue I was there. It's 16 to 20 yards. And I, you know, because I was sitting on the ground with my legs straight out on the ground and the branches are over me. I turned the bow sideways like you'd see Fred Bear. And so I'm, I pulled the bow back sideways. And when I released the arrow, the arrow actually hit one of the pine boughs and ricocheted into her chest. I would have probably shot three feet over her back had I not hit that pine bough. And then that's the doe that went 50 yards into the swamp and we went and got it. And he shot target practice at it after after we gutted it out. And that was kind of my introduction into, into bow hunting. And uh, why was he mad? Um, he was probably mad because we'd hunted a few times and I've shot a deer before he did from the time him and I hunted together. He had shot quite a few deer. He used to shoot target, target shooting in the fifties. And, uh, but I think he was a little myth that this punk kid killed a deer before he did when we were hunting together. So he was jealous. He was definitely jealous. There's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then another time I went out, once I got my driver's license, I went out to that public land and I went in there scouting and I didn't ask him. And uh, he must have called the house or something and found out I was out hunting or scouting. My parents must have said something. And he went out there and he was parked behind my vehicle when I came out of the woods. And this was at Pinckney Recreation Area. And when I walked out of the woods, I had a hatchet, you know, back then, that's how you cleared shooting lanes and stuff and cleaned out trees. You used a hatchet. And, and he, I, I walked up to the side of the car and I had a hatchet and a little handsaw and, and he walked out, got out of his pickup truck and walked up to me and said, ah, what, what you doing with that hatchet? And he grabbed the hatchet out of my hand and he was considerably bigger than me. <laughs> and, and then he slugged me. He just punched me right in the face. And I, I mean, about knocked me on the ground and I was bleeding and he just hit me once. And he's, he said, I told you never to come out here unless I was with you. And he handed me the hatchet back and got in his truck and left. And he made his point, you know, even though uh, it was public land, it was his spot on public land. That was a spot that he had found and he took me. And that was his way of saying you know, even though this is public land, this is my spot. You're not to come out here without me. Wow. That is the most extreme introduction to hunting I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yep. It, well, I didn't have parents that did it. And I, to be honest with you, I've always been the type of person that I don't mind a tough lesson. And that was a tough lesson. And I understood it. So I was okay with it, to be honest with you. Because he had told me, he had told so how, me never to go out there without him. And I did. So how long did you continue hunting with him, John? Oh, probably until I was 19 or 20. He's dead now. He, he died probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but yeah, till I, I was, I'd say till I was about 20. I killed, 
I killed my first really nice buck with him, a, a pretty nice eight point. And that would have been, I don't know, late 60s. Wow. Yeah, I agree, Greg. That was, um, I wasn't expecting that intro. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I wasn't expecting that at all. You know, hey, mister, hey, mister, do you mind teaching me how to hunt? Wham! Just stalks you right in the face. I got to say, John, I've, I've heard a lot yeah. of crazy stories from my dad uh, about when they were hunting in the 60s, about like my great grandfathers and stuff, but that one's right up there with oh, all he, of them. yeah leroy sounds like a maniac he was a maniac he was an alcoholic and he was a maniac but he was a really good hunter i remember one time we he shot a mature doe right before dark and this was on public land but it was night right next to a crop field and the doe died out in this crop field it was a pit cornfield and she had two fawns with him when he shot her and leroy was a meat hunter back then there was there was no trophy hunting you know you were deer hunting I, th- I think stat- statistically, 7% of uh, licensed hunters killed a deer, 2% of licensed hunters killed a, a buck, you know, and it would be a spike or a four point. But anyway, he shot this doe, and when we were out there at the doe gutting it, you could hear these fawns in the distance, eh, you know, blatting for mom. So Leroy said, just kneel down. So we had our bows with us, and he we just kind of knelt down. And Leroy sat there and going, meh, you know, and they'd blat back and they'd move a little closer, meh. And finally they got, one of them got within 10 yards. He shot the fawn. <laughs> so he shot the doe and the fawn. <laughs> oh, Leroy is a stone cold killer. I'm not sure if I love him or hate him. Uh, I don't either. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. <laughs> oh. Wow, what a story. Uh, okay, so uh, there's about a hundred different ways you can start a podcast, and John Eberhard getting punched in the mouth by Leroy is wasn't on my radar. So uh, well done, John. And crying when he shot track, took target <laughs> practice at my at my dear big doe that I shot. Oh, wow. I, I think our, our, um, our downloads are going to go up after the word of this story on here. That's yeah, insane. Wow, yeah. I, I I had never heard of that. So, so so you hunt with Leroy, you get a few mm-hmm. deer under your belt, you get a few punches in your face, and yeah. and then finally you say, uh, you know, so so at this point in time, are tree stands? I mean, are you hunting out of tree stands? I, you no. said that you've been hunting on the ground. So at so that when, time, when did tree stands come into play? At that time, hunting out of trees was illegal. <laughs> you couldn't hunt out of tree stands, even with a bow out of trees. Tree stands were not even around at that time. Uh, But when uh, tree stand, hunting out of trees, I actually started hunting out of trees before it was legal. I'll be honest with you. I think it became legal in the early 70s and I was doing it in the late 60s. But once it became legal, what I would typically do is I would just climb up a tree. I'd stand in a crotch or I would nail a two by six, maybe a, you know, a 14 inch long piece of two by six or two by eight in the crotch, something to stand on. Uh, so that's basically, or once in a blue moon, you're, if you're in a pine tree, you'd find branches where you could sit on one branch and put your feet on another branch. But that's, that's typically how I hunted back then. I, I, I never really enjoyed hunting on the ground. I was not a big ground guy, even though that was what was legal. Okay, so you do that for a few years, and then, mm-hmm. uh, lo and behold, here comes this wonderful invention called a tree stand. What what, what does that do to hun- hunting in Michigan? 
Uh, well, I, I worked at a sports shop in the mid-70s. I moved up to northern Michigan, and I started working at Jay's Sporting Goods, and I was a buyer. That's the largest uh, independent sporting goods in the state. And probably one of the first stands that came out was called a Baker Climber. And it it was literally a death trap. I mean, it was a climber that if you'd, if you'd shinny up a tree and it was any with smooth bark like a maple or a, a beech tree or a birch tree, you know, if you didn't, if you put your weight close to the tree, if you didn't have your, your weight out farther on the stand so that the leverage would kick, kick it down into the tree, uh, if you stood close to the tree, it, very frequently it would slide down. I mean, a lot of people got injured badly in Baker tree stands. And I, I just was never, I just never liked tree stands. I just never felt comfortable in a tree stand. I didn't like standing on a little platform. I didn't like having my body off the one side of the tree where I couldn't move around the tree. Uh, I just didn't, I didn't like back then they all creaked. You know, if you've shifted your weight during a shot, they usually made a creak. Um, there was just a lot and they were cumbersome to tote around. You had to have multiple tree stands for multiple trees. And I just didn't like them. And then in 1981, I had left Jay's by then. I became a drywall finisher. I'd finished drywall board professionally for 14 years. And in 1981, I saw this thing called the Anderson tree sling. And it looked like a seatbelt gone wrong, basically. It was seatbelt material, seatbelt fabric, which is, I think, 3,000-pound test. And it was just a bunch of these seatbelt straps kind of sewn together, and they made a seat. And then the seat came around to the side, and then there was a bridge in the front, and then there was a lead tether that was on top of the, the bridge strap, and it was all one piece. You know, unlike the stuff nowadays where there's different pieces, this was all tied together. So basically, you climbed up a tree, you wrapped the lead tether around the tree, and you tied it in a knot. So that was my first introduction, and I just saw this thing hanging on a shelf, had no clue what it was. Nobody in the store that was selling it knew what it was. And I bought it and it was extremely uncomfortable. Um, but I could see by the weight of it and by the size of it, how small it packed. I only needed one of them to hunt every tree. Um, I said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to use this thing because the advantage, the advantage okay. of this. And huge. so you've got this. Uh, yeah. So you've got this, this tree sling now. The rest of the people hunting from trees, is tree stand hunting like a thing now or, or still pretty much everyone's hunting from the ground or what's the, what's that look At like? At that time, yeah, people were primarily starting to hunt out of trees with, uh, uh, oh my God, what were the tree stands? Obviously the Baker climber was around, um, API was around at the time, um, there was another one, a real small framed one. There, there was like three or four tree stand companies. And that was in the early 80s. That would have been 81. By, my, by 1985, I mean, there was probably 30 or 40 different tree stand companies. So tree stands were very prevalent. Uh, I didn't know anybody else that hunted out of an Anderson tree sling. Okay. Were, pe were people allowed to put permanent like wooden stands up uh, around you or... On public land, you've, they were never allowed to put anything where it actually penetrated into the meat of the tree. So if you're talking about putting wooden stands where they could use spikes okay. on public land, no, that was not legal. They yeah. did it, but it wasn't legal. 
Right. Okay. Because I grew up and that was legal. So mm-hmm. that's what I knew from when I was a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. But most of the people were okay. using hang-ons and, and back then most of the hang-ons were chains. They weren't straps. They were, they were chains. And yeah, that's what, that's what I primarily started hunting out of in the, uh, let's see. I, I started when I was, a, when I was, I don't know, nine or 10. So that would have been in the mid to late eighties. And that's all we used: big, heavy stainless steel, uh, big platforms with the chain on, and that was pretty common. I mean, we hunted out of those for a long yep. time. That was what was popular. And then uh, I think in the mid to late '80s, uh, Lone Wolf came out with uh, cast aluminum, and then that one became that one became and is still probably the most popular one and the best tree stand out there. But I, I, I have never had any interest i to me hunting out of a tree stand is archaic i think that's like stone age to me i i can't fathom how people can hunt out of a tree stand when they have so many options in different harnesses because harnesses are so much of an advantage yeah they really are um and you have this this anderson tree sling that i'm assuming is still pretty much stock you haven't modified it yet but what will what was your next step? So you've got this, you've, the sling or the saddle, mm-hmm. the, the harness, whatever you want to call it. I think, you know, kind of most people nowadays are calling it a saddle. Um, but so you've got this saddle and what, what's your next step? When did you start modifying it? Did you try others? Uh, I know there were a few others that came out. Um, did you ever jump into the trophy line? Tree saddle, was that a thing? But, but where'd you uh, well, go next? next? First off, when... Uh, Anderson got bought by a company called Big Buck. So then it was became the Big Buck Sling. So it was still a Big Buck tree sling. And I hunted out of that it just the way it came, you know, with no modifications until probably the late, late 90s. I don't really know the year, but Trophy Line came out with their, their uh, saddle and they actually got a hold of me. Uh, because they knew I I was writing at the time, so I was writing about hunting out of sling and, and slings and stuff like that. In fact, in my first book, Bow Hunting Pressured Whitetails, there's a, a complete chapter in it, and it's about hunting out of a sling, not a saddle. So they sent me a couple saddles to try. I didn't really like them because they were bigger, more cumbersome. They had leg straps. They had shoulder straps. Uh, they just had a lot more stuff on it. You know, and mine was relatively small, but I did like their lead strap. I liked the way their lead strap had that adjustment drape on it. So what I did is I took their lead strap and I incorporated it into my sling. So my sling basically did not have an adjustment. Once you tied it off to the tree, that's where it was until you got down and left. Whereas when I put the uh, adjustable lead from the trophy line saddle onto my sling now i could adjust my drape which makes a big big difference you can shorten your drape to make it more comfortable or lengthen your drape to make them you know if you got too much weight on your butt uh you pull up a little bit of your drape so you got more weight on your feet or vice versa so uh that made it a lot a lot easier and also i helped trophy line uh it was my idea to do the mesh their mesh saddle which became their most popular saddle. You know, they, initially they had the leather one and then they came out with a neoprene and then it was my idea. I worked with them to do the mesh saddle and I was supposed to, yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. I have the, I have two of them. I have a neoprene and a mesh and I, 
I really like the mesh. Um, especially now that I'm in Georgia yeah. where it's hot pretty much all year long, I can hunt with the mesh all year long. Yeah, the mesh is a lot lighter. And it, and to me, everything is about mobility. So I want everything to be as small and as mobile as possible. And the mesh wraps up about half the size of a neoprene or the leather, and it, and it also knocks off about two pounds of weight. So, I, I yeah, I, I like the mesh and, and – uh, I was supposed to get paid a royalty on that, but yeah, they went out of business before that ever happened, but that was no big deal. In all reality, your saddle hasn't changed that much. I mean, you still hunt out of a, a modified Anderson tree Correct. sling. Am, am I wrong? I mean, I know you've done a lot of modifications, but at the core of it, it's, yeah, a, very, it's an Anderson Actually, tree there's sling, not right? a lot of modifications. What, the only thing I've modif- modified, got to keep in mind, the sling does not have leg straps. It does not have shoulder straps. It's basically a, an adjustable seat. You can adjust the depth of the seat because they overlap. So it's basically a seat, a bridge, and a lead. So the only thing I did was I took the lead off of the sling and I put the Anderson, or not the Anderson, but the trophy line lead onto my sling. So I had the, I had the adjustment drape. And then also what I did, I did, I made one other modification okay. because uh, the saddle lead was supposed to wrap around the tree and then you know how it tethers back onto that little adjustable clip there, that little triangular clip at the top. So what I did is I got rid of that and uh, so I don't have to wrap around the tree and I'm not going to tell people how I do it because it kills the liability of it. But basically I... I put a screw in T about head height, hair height. And so my lead is very, very short and it's got a loop on the end of it. So I just climb up the tree, throw my lead over that first T and then I hook it to another T off to my side. I, from the time I get up in the tree, put my feet on my steps, I am hooked up within probably five seconds at the very most. I don't have to wrap around the tree, so I can hunt. I can hunt a flat wall if I could climb it. Tree diameters are not a factor. Yeah, no, I, that makes sense. And then uh, something that I wanted to mention for for some folks that are that are new to saddle hunting, when when John says lead, so there's lots of different terms for that. Um, well, there's not really lots. There's just a few. So there's a lead. A lot of people call it a tether. Uh, some folks call it a safety strap, just depending on, on, yeah, tree, tree strap, strap, just depending on, you know, kind of what you're familiar with. But, but when John says lead, what he means is the, the, the main safety line attached to the tree and then to his saddle or sling. That's what he's, that's the lead or the tether. So yeah. that's the thing that's holding all your weight. Yeah. Uh, it's a very important piece of gear. Now, John, you had put a, um, a custom bridge on there too, right? Uh, yes, I put a permanent bridge on it, correct. And then I put the uh, the lead with the adjustment drape around that bridge. And so it's permanent. It's all it's all one piece. And just just so saddle users out there that are kind of gotcha. new to this, right? Okay. Uh, any any piece of equipment you buy now, you know, like the the new tribe evolution, those all come with what I call a safety strap. So there's no way of falling out of this system. You're basically at the base of your tree when you walk up to a tree, the way you're supposed to do it and the way it tells you in the instructions is there's a safety strap that goes around the tree 
So you're tethered to the tree and it's adjustable. So as you're going up the tree, you adjust that safety strap to the diameter of the tree. Once you get up to your steps, your ring of steps, you leave the safety strap around the tree. Then you hook up your lead strap. Once your lead strap's hooked up, so you're securely fastened to the tree with your lead, then you disattach the safety strap and put it in your in a pouch or a pocket someplace. And then you hunt. Once you get done hunting, you take out that safety strap, wrap it back around the tree, hook it to the other side, and then you disattach your lead, and then you go down with the safety strap tethered to the tree as you're going down. So at no point are you ever disengaged from the tree. Uh, that safety strap that John's referring to, that uh, another term for that would be the lineman belt. Um, it's the same thing. It's a rope that goes around the tree. And just like John said, it's, it's hooked on at both hips. It's adjustable. You're hooked to the tree the entire time. That lineman belt, that safety strap, uh, is, is super important because, uh, for those of you that are new, maybe, maybe you don't know something crazy, John, correct me if I'm wrong on the stat here, but something crazy, like 90% of, of tree stand accidents happen, transitioning from your climbing method to your stand so it's it's pretty important um that that you pay attention to that and keep that safety strap that lineman belt connected whenever you're climbing the tree you're absolutely correct there are there there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of accidents people falling out. i know i probably know a handful of people that have fell out of trees myself and from 20, you know, 25 feet and it almost always happens climbing into the tree stand or getting out of the tree stand. Yeah, exactly Almost. right. Statistically, if you're going to fall uh, while hunting from an elevated tree stand, you're going to fall transitioning in or out of the out of the hunt. Uh, now, my brother-in-law actually fell uh, from a tree stand. He fell 20-some feet, um, but it wasn't during the transition. He was actually standing on the, on the, the tree stand, uh, he turned around to cut a limb and his strap, uh, the uh, ratchet strap just broke and he was instantly down the tree, 20 foot, broke his arm, broke his ankle, uh, hurt his back real bad. Luckily it wasn't anything, you know, life threatening, but you know, it, it took physical therapy and surgery and, you know, it was a big deal. He was very fortunate. He didn't have a safety, uh, a safety harness on because he, he wasn't hunting. This was, I want to say this was preseason. He was just getting everything ready. Um, yeah, so it's important, I, you know, all that to say that it's important to keep safety first and always pay attention to your ropes and straps and make sure that everything is connected and safe. So, so really just taking um, the, the history of saddle hunting that John just gave us, you can really appreciate the products we have on the market now and how easy it is for you to not be um, – not have to be not attached to the tree the entire time. I mean, it's, it's so nice. I feel so, so safe saddle hunting. I, I don't, it's like not even a second thought to me anymore. Yep. It's kind of interesting. I had somebody come to one of my workshops last year with his 14 year old daughter, uh, Lauren, Greg and Lauren Nowak. And, uh, <laughs> he told his wife, he said, Hun cause she's always worried about the kids falling. They got, he's got a son and a daughter and he said, honey, that's why they're hunting out of harnesses because they're safe. The kids can't fall as long. They're always tethered to the tree. They can't fall. And uh, Lauren actually shot the buck her dad was after this year. It was really, it was a really a great story. Big, big eight plane. 
Yeah, it was awesome. 14 years old. That's awesome. That's great. That's great. I took my daughter. Can I I ask? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that I took my daughter uh, saddle hunting for the first time this season. And it was was a little sketchy at first. I'm not going to lie. She was pretty nervous. Uh, But I put her, she's nine. I put her in a trophy line tree saddle. You know, it's overbuilt. Uh, mostly because that's what mama wanted. Mama wanted to make sure she was going to be safe. And I, God only knows if she had fallen and, and it would, I'd never lived it down. So, um, so she, she got in the trophy line, which you could hold, you could hang a Jeep from the trophy line tree saddle. And she was in that. And as soon as she realized how safe it was and she could lean back and she wasn't going to fall as soon as she felt comfortable in it. Oh, she had a blast. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. Lauren was the same way. She was hunting out of a trophy line saddle. And that the sat the fabric that saddle was made out of it was ninety six hundred pound nylon fabric. And the buckles that they used were all military military buckles. So that was that was way, way overdone. In fact, that was the safest thing TMA ever tested. They took a two hundred and seventy five pound log, tethered it into that harness and then hooked it up to the lead and then pulled it up three feet above the lead and let it free fall. So it free fell six feet in that, that harness actually stopped that 275 pound log and no tree stand would ever stop a 275 log from six feet fall. No way. That's insane. Everyone would buckle. It's totally insane. I mean, that is, first of all, that's impossible in a, uh, any sort of realistic hunting scenario uh, because these, these battles they're designed to prevent a fall, not catch a fall as right. opposed to a safety harness is designed to catch a fall, not prevent a fall. And I would a whole lots whether rather be something that was going to stop yeah. me from ever falling in the first place. Kat, you put that very well. You put that very, very well. A safety belt is designed to stop you from the end of a fall. Whereas the harness is designed to stop you from falling, period. Yeah, very well put. Yeah, and and you know, so we've kind of diverted our story, our our history of saddle hunting, uh, and we've gotten down a little bit of a safety a safety kick, which is always a good thing. Uh, Scott is always after me to make sure that I talk about safety because I have a tendency to throw caution to the wind and be a little irresponsible. Uh, so Scott, you've got to be happy that we talk safety so much. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I talk about it all the time, but I just feel a responsibility that if, um, cause we, we do a lot of DIY stuff and we promote a lot of DIY stuff on here. But the caveat with that is that you have to be extra cautious about safety mm-hmm. when you're doing that. Yep. I completely agree. I mean, you're right. I'm wrong in this scenario. I'm just, I'm just happy that uh, we were able to talk safety. Yep. Yeah, safety is a big yeah, deal. Definitely. By the way, I was going to ask you that when uh, your friend fell because the ratchet strap broke, was that uh, squirrels chew on it or pack rats or what happened to that ratchet strap? You know, I, I'm not even sure if he ever got to the bottom of it. He was... He was so traumatized by that event, you know, uh, we think of PTSD as being just a military thing, but I mean, really post-traumatic stress disorder is, it can happen to anyone from any walk of life at any, any moment in life, as soon as something stressful happens. And I think he had a little bit of PTSD from that. And, 
And that was probably five or six years ago. And he hasn't gone hunting since. But to answer your question, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer was. The reason I ask is because that's one thing I can't understand that trees, tree stand guys use. Uh, Out West pack rats are a big issue. You know, like you get in Kansas and Iowa, um, you know, North Dakota, there's a lot of pack rats and pack rats go out after dark and they climb up trees. I've had them chew two of my, you know, my rope, my rope pulls for my bows. You know, I'd be out there for a one week hunt and, you know, a couple of my ropes get chewed off in a, in a week. And I know a guy that was out in Kansas and he, he fell from his stand because pack rats went up and they chewed on the harness on the backside of the tree. And then, you know, that held the tree stand. And when he got in the harness in the tree stand, it, it, it basically, it, it broke through that buckle did and, and he fell 20, 20 feet. And the reason he knew it was pack rats is because they had had cameras on the trees and they could actually see pack rats going up the trees at night. Go figure. Yeah. I thought that was really wow. interesting. And, and I, I actually thought it was red squirrels that were chewing my ropes. You know, my ropes would be hanging and they'd, they'd lean up against a branch, maybe, you know, halfway down from where I had it tethered to the tree and in the morning I'd come come in and the rope was laying on the ground and I thought it was red squirrels but it was pack rats John I'm not out there chewing your ropes don't worry <laughs> uh, well you're not red squirrel anyways you're pink squirrel <laughs> oh thanks <Greg. laughs> oh, oh, oh anyway uh well hey John why don't you tell us a little bit um tell the listeners about Give us some tips for saddle hunting, you know, for the for the folks that are just getting into it, that are new. What are some things they need to think about? Maybe what are some other pieces of gear that you found over the years that, that made saddle hunting more comfortable, uh, more user-friendly, easier to do? You know, talk us through that a little bit. Give us some tips to make uh, all of us better saddle hunters. Well, the one thing I'd like to do first is I'd like to give the advantages of using a harness I don't want to call it a saddle because, you know, a kestrel is called a harness. Uh, harness is, is a better term. And for viewers that aren't really familiar with this type of a thing, it's very, they're very similar to what an arborist use, you know, people that climb up trees and cut branches professionally. So they're very similar to what an arborist use, but arborists use them with a lot of metal to metal parts. So for hunting, the, the ones that are made for hunting, there are no metal to metal parts. You don't get any tanging or noise, but anyway, what they do, what a harness does is it gives you the option, I'll go into every season with anywhere from 40 to 50 trees prepped. You know, I may only prep five new trees during postseason every year, but I'll go and re-prep all of my existing trees. So I may go into season with 40 to 50 trees prepped, and I can hunt with one harness that's in my backpack with all my other clothes and all my other gear. So I don't have to have multiple stands. I don't have to worry about somebody hunting my stand when I'm not there. I don't have to worry about somebody stealing my stand. I don't have to worry about my stand creaking. I don't have to worry about, well, this tree's leaning, so I can't hunt out of this. With a harness, you can hunt out of a leaning tree. You can hunt out of a four-inch tree. You can hunt out of any diameter tree, you know, depending on how you hook up your lead. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, ice on a platform, you know, in December hunting. Um, you know, it's always with you. You only have one for the rest of your life. You can hunt every tree the rest of your life with one harness. That they, I've, I'm still using the same harness that I bought in 1981. And 
and it still isn't frayed or anything. I have replaced the lead strap. I did put that uh, trophy line lead strap on it uh, in the late 90s. But other than that, it's the same exact seat and everything. So, um, you know, you can adjust your drape. It's much, much more comfortable. It's much more comfortable for hunting all day. I, I used to. I'm not doing as much all day sits as I used to. But for me to sit all day in a harness is no big deal because I can adjust just the seat because my seat is adjustable. I can adjust the seat up higher on my back. So I'm very comfortable. It's like sitting in a chair. And then when I actually start hunting, I'll slide the seat. I'll shallow the seat up where it's just underneath my butt, basically. So I've got more upper upper body mobility. Uh, There's just so many advantages to using a harness over a tree stand. You can use the tree as a blocker. This is a monstrous issue right here. If you're hunting at a destination location, let's say you're hunting at a primary scrape area or you're hunting at a white oak tree or you're hunting at an apple or a pear tree, some someplace where deer come and they linger for a while and you're in a tree stand and it's during the rut phases when all the foliage is down. Typically, if you're in a tree stand, you're kind of off to the side because so, you want to shoot to that destination location. You know, if you're on the opposite 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree from the destination location, you can't shoot to that destination location from a tree stand because you can't shoot around the backside of a tree. So from a harness, you can actually be on the backside of that tree. So that tree is a 100% blocker. Those deer cannot see you. And when deer are at a feeding location, or even if you're a bait hunter, you know, I don't bait, but if you're a bait hunter, there there's deer hanging in a certain location for a period of time. And when they are, they're always looking around. So if you're in a tree stand and you're sticking out the side of the tree, your odds of getting picked are really, really good. Whereas when you're in a harness and you're on the backside of the tree, you're not going to get picked. You're just peeking around the corner of the tree. When an opportunity comes, you make very minimal movement. You just slide over to the side, to your left side if you're right-handed, and you just make very minimal movement to make your shot. So that's another major, major advantage. If there's deer coming, let's say you're, you're in a transition zone where deer are coming from point A to point B and you're in a pinch point. Uh, you can actually, if non-targeted deer are coming through, you can just slide around to the backside of the tree and you can always keep the, de- the tree between you and the deer so that you don't get picked. You know, and that's a big deal when the rut phases come around because during the rut, 60% of all P&Y bucks are shot during the rut phases. And typically during the rut phases in the northern states, all the foliage is down. So you're much more apt to getting picked. So there's just a boatload of advantages a harness has over a tree stand. Yeah, I I agree. And it we stress it, but I feel like what you just said, it can't be stressed enough. And even I'll have times where I'm hiding behind the tree when the deer I want to shoot comes out. And then as soon as it gets into a spot, like let's say its head goes behind a tree or a bush or something, I'll just slide out and that's when I'll take yep. my shot. So it's it's just so yeah, many advantages. Yeah. And for me, one of the big things is I don't have the, uh, the I'm going to say the benefit of hunting like, like you do, John, where I can prepare a whole bunch of trees. You know, my my profession doesn't allow me to spend more than a few seasons in one place. Mm-hmm. So... I'm constantly learning new areas and moving and I rarely get to hunt the same tree twice. Now I know that you don't hunt the same tree a whole bunch of times over the course of the season, but you, you at least have the same areas that you get to go to over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't have that. Uh, however, with a tree stand, I'd be lugging the big giant piece of metal around and 
the noise that comes along with it. And, and there are tree stands out there that they have designed very well that aren't loud and that people do quietly, but they're, they're not as quiet as my fleet, my fabric saddle, and they're not as light as my fabric saddle. So the mobility and the, and the uh, simplicity of, of the saddle is one of the things that draws me to it. Yep. I agree. I, I used to get the biggest kick out of watching Michael Waddell or one of the Drury's with the tree stand on their back and their bow and they got a backpack and they got climbing sticks and they're walking down a nice pristine two track on a nice, nice micromanaged piece of property where they were just going to walk through a nice clean area and jump in a tree. You know what, when you're hunting pressured animals or public land, that doesn't exist. You're bucking brush. You're going through junk. Okay. And you can't carry that kind of stuff. It just doesn't work. And I, I, I literally lay on the ground and laugh when I see that kind of stuff, because literally you can't, you, you just can't carry all that junk when you're hunting, hunting in pressured areas where, you know, you're having to go through brush, you're having to go through thickets. You, you've got to cross a river, you know, with waders, you, you've got to do things outside of the ordinary. And all, all one thing I forgot to mention which is a major advantage over tree stands is in a harness you can shoot 360 degrees around the tree there are no dead areas when you're hunting out of a harness you can move around the tree and shoot any direction you cannot do that out of any conventional stand whatsoever have you ever uh had that work against you uh, where the deer have picked you off where you were moving around because you know I, i've hunted that way before too and and sometimes if you're moving, if your things are happening quickly and you're trying to get around the tree, I mean, you can make some pretty big movements. Have you ever encountered that situation where, where that movement around the tree, uh, harmed you? No, I haven't. Cause I've usually, I've usually seen it coming and know exactly what's going to take place before it actually takes place in the location it does. And typically when you're pursuing mature bucks, you know, three and a half years old and older, um, there's not going to be a lot of other deer because as soon as they come into the area, any subordinate bucks or any does and fawns that are not in heat are gone. So they're not around them. So it's not like I'm shooting at a mature buck when there's a lot of other deer around that are going to pick me. The only other deer typically that might be around is the doe that he's pursuing. So typically when I get shots okay. at mature bucks, though, they're coming into a primary scrape area pretty much on their own. They're pretty solitude. Or if there's does feeding at an apple tree or something and a mature buck comes in, they leave. They don't want anything to do with him. So I don't have to worry about spooking them because they're gone. You know, if a subordinate buck comes in, okay. uh, you know, a six-point or two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point, the does might hang around. But if a three-and-a-half-year-old or older buck, they don't want anything to do with them. So they, they leave the area. But I know what you're I know what you're saying. And that's another it to me unique thing about the harness. Since I've hunted out of a harness, I, I'm so comfortable with it and I'm so secure in it that I hunt a lot higher than I would out of a tree stand. I, I can remember I hunted in a tree stand once. I went hunting with this dude and he put me in a tree stand and it was like, I don't know, 18 or 20 feet off the ground. And I was so uncomfortable and i felt so unsafe in that tree stand so i i took some steps out and i went up about another eight feet above it and hooked up with my harness i mean you (laughs) you're just more comfortable and you're just just safer in a harness so you tend to hunt higher where you're up out of the deer's peripheral vision which is another big advantage 
And an- another thing that ties into both um, the shooting 360 and the movement is um, practice and experience. Like, first of all, if you want to shoot 360, yeah, sure. Sometimes you have to get into some awkward spots, but if you practice them, you know what you can do and you know how to do it. And then the experience by doing all these situations, actually in a tree hunting, you know, when you can move, get away with that movement. Like I said before, the deer, when he puts his head behind the tree, that's when I'll make my big movement. So I'm ready when he pops out. So it just, you, you just gotta, yeah. you, you gotta go through it and learn. Yeah, and that's and what, learn that's what with you anything when it comes to deer hunting, you know, you, you have to learn by experiences and yeah, you just, over time, you just learn to know what you can do and when you can do it. You know, Lauren, that 14 year old girl, that's one thing it, the workshops when we had them is when I got up in the tree, I showed them, you know, everything I'm right-handed. So obviously I move around the tree and try and shoot everything, you know, just off to my left side. But I also showed the people, you know, where you got to pull your bow over top of your lead strap and contort your body to shoot to your right side when you're right-handed, which is difficult. And that's how she ended up shooting that eight point is she actually, when she went home, she lived in New York, uh, she went home and she practiced that shot. And that's the actual shot she took is she had to contort her body. She was left-handed. So she had to pull the bow over top of the lead strap and shoot to her left, which contorted her body. But she made the shot and made a perfect hit. But yeah, that's all something you have to hmm. practice. And on also when you're, I always practice from the same height. I never, ever practice on the ground, ever. I never shoot my bow off the ground because I never hunt on the ground. And if a person practices on the ground and then shoots his bow at a deer from, you know, 20, 25 feet up in a tree. He's probably going to shoot several inches high because it changes your triangle. When you're shooting on the ground, your head is straight up and down. So your eye to your mouth distance is the same. And then you got a triangle to your hand from your eye to your hand, hand to your, your anchor point, and then up to your eye. That's your triangle. Well, when you're up in a tree, if you lean down, you're tilting your head forward. So now your eye to anchor is actually shortened because your head's leaning forward and that makes you shoot high. So if you do practice from the ground and you are going to take a shot from 20, 25 feet in a tree, the ideal way to do it is to draw your bow parallel to the ground, just like you're shooting straight out into the woods and then bend at the waist. So you keep that triangle the same. Otherwise, that's why I practice from a tree because then I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I'm just replicating the same way I shoot when I'm practicing. Right. You do it the, you do it the same way every time and you don't have yes. to worry about it. Yeah. Hey, John, I want to get back to the, the question that I yeah. asked a few minutes ago about some tips and tricks for, for making people more successful. But, but before we do that, uh, I, I wanted to ask about when you when you're freelancing, I know that's what you've called mm-hmm. it in, in your books – uh, how does that change? And for, so, so let me set the scene here for, for those that haven't read your book. So uh, you, you have kind of two different ways of, of hunting a tree. You have a preset tree where you go in before the season and you cut shooting lanes and you prep the tree with screw in steps or a ladder or whatever climbing method you're going to use to get up the tree. But then you also talk about this, uh, this method where it's kind of like a run and gun or a mobile set or, you know, all these other different adjectives people use to describe it. Mm -hmm. I know you call it freelancing. And that's basically when you, 
you know, you're going into an area maybe you've never been before, you're finding hot sign, you're finding a primary scrape area, you're finding an apple tree or you're finding fresh rut sign, and then you're saying, I'm going to hunt here and you're finding that perfect tree. What does that scenario look like for you? How are you climbing the tree? What are the things that you're thinking about uh, on a freelance or a mobile setup? I always have two freelance packs in my minivan. I hunt out of a minivan. And my freelance packs, I always have a backpack. That's where my harness is at. That's where all my extra layers of clothing is at, my grunt calls, all my all my ropes and stuff. And then I have a freelance fanny pack. And it's just basically a fanny pack with a big pocket. And then it's got two side pockets. Each side pocket, I have six folding steps, Cranford folding steps. And then in the big pocket... I have six or seven single fold, they're called deluxe steps, and then I also have a safety belt in there. So basically, if I'm freelancing, I'll wear that fanny pack underneath my backpack, and then I've got my bows. So I'm, I'm really not adding anything cumbersome. I just got a fanny pack underneath my backpack. So then I'm just going through the, the, through the woods. Uh, obviously, I'm, my scent control is about as perfect as perfect can get. So I'm not worried about that. And I'm looking for the best sign and the hottest sign. And then when I find a location, you know, I'll prep the tree with the screw in steps. Or if I'm on public land, I'll use uh, Cranford's rope strap on steps and I'll just prep the tree and, and hunt right there on the spot. And the biggest buck I've ever shot in my life, 180 inch I shot on a freelance hunt. I was hunting a spot in the morning. It was an all supposed to be an all day sit. And I just didn't like where I was at in the morning. And I was seeing some deer off in the distance because the foliage was down. It was during the rut. So I just got down and I had a decoy out. So I folded up the decoy and hit it because I wasn't going to carry that with me. And I just freelanced about 250 yards back closer to this big river. And I found a primary scrape area and it was just tore up <laughs> there was four huge scrapes biggest carwoods and uh i climbed up this tree i was up about 25 feet and i shot 180 incher that evening was that the uh that was the michigan state record nope nope that one was in 1981 and that was back in a cattail marsh on public land and that was 167 incher that was the 180 okay. incher was in iowa oh okay okay the land of giants yes <laughs> The land of a lot of big, stupid deer. <laughs> That's the way I like to put it. There's a lot of mature bucks out in Iowa and Kansas, and they're not that bright because, because there's not a lot of hunting pressure, and there's so many mature bucks vying for breeding rights, and it, they just move all the time. It's nothing like Michigan or New York or PA yeah, or Ohio. Okay, good. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, that makes a lot more sense. So you use use the the cramford uh strap-on steps anytime that you can't screw into the tree is that pretty much your only two climbing methods you either use screw in steps or strap-on steps that's it okay i've had manufacturers send me climbing sticks i've probably got a half a dozen different brands of climbing sticks and they're you know i try i don't want anything cumbersome where i'm hunting i can't have cumbersome and climbing sticks are cumbersome if i'm carrying climbing sticks i've got to carry you know five or six climbing sticks because I like to get up there 25, 28 feet. And then I got to have my backpack and then I got to carry my bow. And that's, it's just too cumbersome. I, I just refuse to do that. I'm going to send you my address after this and you can just ship those climbing sticks down to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're convenient. I mean, they they go on easy. There's no doubt about that. But uh, my my kids borrow them all the time when they go bear hunting in the UP. But I never I never ever use them. Nah, your kids don't need them as badly as I do. You can send them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, hey, let's get, let's get back to the the tips. What can you what what's give me like your top two tips if you're a brand new saddle hunter. Um, what are your top two tips that are going to make make your experience better? Keep your lead low. You know, a lot. If you look at the instructions on the the old Trophy Line saddle, I really never looked at the instructions on the new tribe stuff, which is what's available now. But they show you basically tethering your lead at arm's height above your head, and that is extremely uncomfortable. The higher you put your lead the more that lead is right straight down in front of your face. And the more that lead is in front of your face and, you know, straight down in front of your body, the more your upper body has to lean back away from the tree. The farther your back leans away from the tree, the more pressure it puts on your lower back and the more comfortable it is. I put my lead about eye to hair height. And that way I want my lead coming down to my waist at about a 45 degree angle. And that way I can lean forward. A lot of times when I get in my tree an hour and a half before daylight, I will literally wrap my arms around the lead and lean forward and go to sleep on, you know, with my head leaning on the lead strap, you know, leaning forward. And my body is always leaning forward. I never have my body straight up or leaning backwards because it puts too much pressure on on my back. Uh, Another thing would be the way you put your steps. You know, if if you're hunting in a bigger diameter tree, as you put the steps around to the back side of the tree, you need to bring the steps up about an inch and a half each one. Every time you put another step, it needs to go about an inch higher than the other one. Because when, when you're moving around a t- bigger tree to shoot to the opposite side, as you move around, that lead is pulling your body up and the steps have to come up to make up for that lead pulling your body up. So the steps need to rise with the lead. Um Let's see. What else? Those would be the top two. Scott, what do you what do you have to say to, to all that? Oh, John was just bringing back memories of the first time I spoke to him, probably ten years ago, and those were the two tips he gave me then. And so I would say that those hold true. Just from listening to everything that you've said, I think there is a there is a tendency uh, with on saddlehunter.com and I think for hunters in general to complicate the process listening to you describe your methods and uh uh, and your techniques for climbing and hunting i i think another one would just be to keep it simple i mean you keep it simple repeatable you're doing the same thing over and over again and so there's there's no gray area you know exactly how you're going to climb the tree you know exactly how you're going to hook it up hook up your your tether your lead you know exactly where everything i bet you even know which side of the tree you hang your bow on and you probably do it the same way every single time so i would say that sounds to me like keep it simple would be a a, another tip that you might want to throw out there yeah i could i could basically go in a tree at the base of a tree in the pitch black or close my eyes climb the tree hook it up hook up my back, everything by feel. I could reach in my backpack and grab anything at any moment. I know exactly what's in every single pocket. Um, yeah, everything's pretty automatic. And and I would definitely suggest anybody getting into harness hunting, you know, 
set up a tree in your yard, like, you know, put some steps 18 inches off the ground and just practice, you know, 18 inches off the ground till you get comfortable with it. Now, to me, you know, a lot of these, you know, the saddle used to come with shoulder straps and it comes with leg straps. Well, I don't use any of that stuff. I, I've taken off, all I have is a seat and a lead strap, basically. Um, and, uh, and a safety, a safety harness if I, if I need it, but very, very rarely do I even use the safety climbing harness, even though I do suggest it for most people, <laughs> but I don't use, I don't use the shoulder straps. I take, I take them off. Uh, the leg straps really are not, they're there. They don't really do anything. They, they serve absolutely no function whatsoever. They hang loose. They don't tighten up around your thigh. So, you know, once you get comfortable hunting out of a harness, you can you can delete most of that stuff. You can just take it off. You want to keep it as simple as possible. Okay. And the more people the more people I've talked to that have hunted out of a harness, and I've made probably I've had probably twenty slings like mine made for people. Um, oh, they love it. They they would like never hunt out of anything else whatsoever it's and it's kind of like the sit and drag i think sit and drag's really light and small and yeah that's what i'm hunting out of it's a little bit different in the by the fact that uh the sit and drag is is one piece of fabric uh joined together where yours is a couple of straps that you can kind of move around uh it's just mine is just one solid piece so that's really the only difference my basically it's it's like a swing you know the old school swings that are on a swing set that, that's basically what i hunt from yeah. and i um, i've used both and i think the uh the anderson sling blows the sit and drag away <laughs> because of the two pieces it is nice to be but that, having those two pieces are i was gonna say it is nice to be that? able to adjust that that seat depth Oh yeah, it's it's huge because you can put both of them under your butt for more support. If you want to pull one up, you can. I, I just personally can never get comfortable in the sit and drag because to me it's just such a limited amount of material. Whereas the the sling, I can move it all around. Yeah, it may be. Maybe if I tried one, I'd love it. I've just never had one, so I've never tried it. Yeah, but maybe I'll bring it to Saddlepalooza. <laughs> my son, my son Joey, who is uh, he's about forty years old. He's my youngest boy. I got three boys, and all my kids—that's all they've ever hunted out of. You know, when they started in, as teenagers, they've always hunted out of harnesses. And uh, but Joey, you know, I've got a new Kestrel because uh, Sophia sent me a Kestrel to try, and I put my same saddle tether on the Kestrel. And my son used that, and he actually likes that better than he likes the sling because he has the sling too. Uh, he said it's a little bit more comfortable. It's got a little more cushion in it. So, you know, everybody's different. Some people like the saddles. Some people like the neoprene. You know, everybody's different. But my, my suggestion is always keep it as lean and mean as possible. You know, I I had a couple guys come to my workshops and they brought their stuff with them. And I watched them get in trees and they had all these ropes and stuff hanging all over the place. And I was like, there is no way on God's green earth I would go in a tree with all that crap. I'd never remember what went where. <laughs> so, so keep keep it uh, keep it simple. Once you learn how to use it, but 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 the the main thing is there are so many advantages to this thing that if somebody gets one and they feel a little awkward at first, stick with it. Figure it out. Make it work for you. Everybody may have a, something that works a little bit different for them that doesn't work for somebody else. Figure out how to make it so it works for you because it'll give you so many more opportunities in your hunting future. Yeah, and Greg and I say this all the time, John, but 
there, there's a learning curve to learning how to hunt out of a saddle. You just have to stick with it and figure out what works for you. Yep. Well, the key is like, like you mentioned earlier, don't buy, you know, a, a saddle on October 28th when your season opens on September 1st and try to go out and do it. That's not a smart way to do it. You need to spend a couple of a days in your backyard, like John said, uh, hunting from, and you're not hunting, but practicing from 18 inches off the ground. Get familiar with the safety uh, features of the saddle. Learn how to use the lineman belt. Make sure you understand how your tether hooks up to your bridge and, you know, sit out there for 30 minutes and adjust your height, your drape, like John talked about to go higher, go lower, figure out what, what makes, uh, what works with your body type. And, you know, cause John's, John's suggestion of hooking up at his forehead. Well, that's great. That that's going to be great for John. And that seems to be what works for a lot of people, but you may be one of the people that needs to go, you know, six yeah. inches above or six inches below. And the time to figure that out is not, sitting on top of a scrape or a rub line it's in your backyard 18 inches above the ground where you can figure yeah. all that bobby stuff out. boswell for instance he likes hooking up high and he's a taller guy so maybe hooking it up high for a taller person works better yeah i mean there's there's definitely no wrong way to do it as long as it's comfortable yep. and it's safe uh that's 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 really the only hard and fast rule is you know do what works for you and make sure you're safe when you're doing it and you're not doing anything stupid and you'll have a lot of fun yeah. in a And saddle. another thing people really need to keep in mind is when you when you hunt out of a tree stand, you are sitting in a fixed position. Your your butt is X amount of feet above the platform and you have no option to change that. When you're hunting out of a harness, you can sit in a position and let's say you sit in a position for two hours or an hour and a half, and now your butt's sore because you got most of your weight in your butt. You know, you can lift your weight up, pull on your lead tether and you know pull some take up some slack and now you're putting most now you're putting most of your weight on your feet and you got less weight on your butt or vice versa if you're standing more upright and your feet are getting tired you let some lead out and now you put more weight on your butt and less on your feet so you can change your drape and uh the way you sit and you know it you can you can sit all day it's just it's extremely comfortable once you get used to it yeah and sometimes it's just a matter of changing it an inch to make you more comfortable again yeah, boy, ain't that the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you'd think you'd have to move it like six inches. Yeah, just a little tiny bit makes a big difference. That's the story of our lives. We always need that extra inch, right? <laughs> <laughs> I need about three. <laughs> uh, all right, John, I, I know the answer to this. Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyways because I have a reason. But uh, do you use – um? Do you ever use knee pads for when you're in the tree or, or are you mostly leaning away from the tree or how, how, what's your position like up in the tree? Uh, depends on the tree. On narrow trees, I typically don't use knee pads. On big diameter trees where my knees are into the tree, I do use knee pads or on rough bark trees. Okay, so you do use knee pads. Is there a particular brand that you that you like or uh, just whatever you found in the hardware store or what? I'm still using the old Trophy Line knee pads, mm -hmm. but they're, yeah. I can't think of the name of the company right now, but I was in Menards and they... The company that was making them for Trophy Line had to be the same knee pads. They looked identically the same. They were 
you know, they had they had uh, elastic straps, two on each one that went around around your pants, and it had a rubber buckle, so it made absolutely no noise hooking them up and taking them off, and they were hard on the front, so that, you know you didn't wear out of fabric. Uh, but they were only nineteen ninety nine, and that was at Menards. It was kind of a clear plastic on the front. Uh, other than that, the rest of it was black. Okay. But you, you can buy them anywhere. You know, you can get knee pads for, you know, carpet layers and stuff like that. But you you don't want the ones that pull up over your pants. You want them that strap around your knee. Yeah, and you don't want the ones that have Velcro on them because there's a whole bunch of those in Lowe's and Home Depot. And no, <laughs> right. do not buy those. Buy, buy the ones that are elastic and have a little buckle. Yep, rubber buckle. They make absolutely no noise when you take them off or put them on. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I got an, uh, another question, John. So we've talked about all the advantages, and the three of us know them well. But why do you think the saddle hasn't become more popular? Marketing, totally, one hundred percent marketing. It's never been marketed. Okay, it's never ever been marketed. Mm. Trophy Line did a very poor job of marketing. They didn't do any advertising. They never sponsored any TV shows. I don't like TV shows, but they never sponsored any. And mm-hmm. um, so it's it's really never got out there and I'm, I'm doing seminars at the Ohio Deer Expo uh, mid-March and I'm doing seminars at the Michigan Novi Outdoorama in early March and I'm actually going to have uh, a tree in my booth because I also have a booth there selling my books and DVDs and promoting my workshops um, and Bobby Boswell is going to be there with me and he's going to be in a tree. Him or I are going to be in that tree the whole time so it's going to be really interesting because typically yeah, I've been to shows back when Trophy Line used to go to some shows. And when you stand in their booth, I'll bet you nine out of ten hunters that walk by had never, ever heard of it before. They're like, what in the hell is that thing? You know, here's a guy up in a tree swinging around the tree like a monkey. And and they're like, wow, that is really cool. So, I mean, it is just never been. It's not hardly anybody knows what they are. Yeah, we've talked about this many times that that. The, the things basically sell themselves if you can get someone yep. to try it. You know, if you can get it in front of someone and and with a knowledgeable person that can say, you know, do this and do that and take a little bit of that fear away from the, you know, from the potential purchaser, the p- potential buyer. Because, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When you first look at it, if you're only used to tree stand hunting and you haven't researched it or or seen a video about it and you just encountered this thing, it would be a little intimidating. So wait a minute, you're telling me I'm going to climb a tree and hang by that little strap and, and that's it. You know, that's a little off putting, but if you can get someone that has a little bit of experience with it and, and have the hunter try it, they're going to buy it game, you know, no questions, hands down. They're going to love it because they're going to realize how safe it is, how comfortable it is. And then once they actually hang in the tree, they're going to realize that they can hide behind the tree, and that's a huge And they benefit. only need one to re- last the rest of their life. To give you a, a little bit of a back shot on that, back when the saddle was around, uh, this store I used to be the buyer at, Jay's Sporting Goods up in uh, mid-Michigan, they used to sell about 100 saddles a year. I went up there and I got three guys, three of the employees in the archery department using them. So they could, when people came in, you know, they knew how to sell them. And the people that came in had confidence in them. They were successful deer hunters that worked in the archery department and they could intelligently talk about them. If you take a harness 
and you put it in a sporting goods store and there isn't an employee that knows how to use one, archery employees typically have an ego. They work in an archery store because they have an ego, typically. So if a consumer comes in and says, hey, what's this? Well, if that guy doesn't know anything about it or has never used it himself, he's going to say, oh, that's a harness. You don't want that. You want to use this tree stand. And he he doesn't want to talk about the harness because he can't intelligently speak about it. So it makes him look like a fool. So he's going to talk about something he can intelligently speak about, which is probably something he uses. So, you know, if, if that were to come out on the market again, let's say New Tribe brings something out on the market, th- there needs to be an employee staff training so that the people can intelligently talk about harness hunting. Yeah, it's, it's you, you make a good point. Um, definitely the learning curve is, is something that's, that's a real thing, you know, and it's a, it's a real roadblock to some people, you know, if, if someone, for instance, if they're not a very adventurous person or not the type of person that likes to try new things, you know, I could see how, how jumping, you know, with, with both feet into a, into a saddle style or harness style hunting setup would be a little intimidating. So yep. you make a good point about that. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes we forget that Greg, I know we talk about this, but it's, it's become so natural to us. It's, you have to almost step out of yourself and, and um, try to think what a new user would yep. be thinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, John, we have kept you for a little over an hour now, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, I certainly do don't want to wear out our welcome because we want to have you back on the podcast again and again and hopefully sure, uh, hopefully you're willing to do that since you are in fact the, the godfather of saddle hunting i gave you that nickname and i hope it sticks um but hey how can people find out more about you find out about your books and your seminars please give sure. us a give us a pitch about you know how they can learn more about john eberhart well the books have been around a long time uh Wrote first one 2003, second one 2005, last one 2010. They're on my website at uh, www.deer-john.net. Just or else, if you just Google my name and the website, it pop up. And I'm yeah, also, and also, I'll interrupt you there, John. Mm-hmm. If if you guys go to the saddlehunter.com website and click on the podcast button. I will put uh, links to all of John's books and everything in the podcast uh, section link. So it'll be real easy to find. But uh, go ahead, John. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm also doing these deer and deer hunting got a hold of me this uh, last fall. Deer and deer hunting magazine and the deer and deer hunting TV shows. And uh, we filmed about 40 topic videos. And they're going to start their YouTube videos, three to five minutes each on specific topics. And there will be one or two in there on a harness, harness hunting, uh, but they're on scent control. They're on all kinds of different things. And they're going to start airing in May through November on the deer and deer hunting website. They'll probably have some on their TV shows as well. And then also on my, uh, on my website, I'm doing these whitetail workshops and they're two day events. Basically the first day is in the field. And the second day is pretty much an all-day seminar at that Jay Sporting Goods. And they have a seminar room with office chairs, very, very comfortable setting. So first day is in the woods looking at locations I've already got prepped. You know, here's my, why this for an entry, why this for an exit, why this is a morning spot, why this is strictly an evening spot, 
why you have to enter this way, why this is a rut phase location, why this is an early season location. You know, I, I dissect everything. Everything I do has a reason. I don't do anything carte blanche. Um, and basically that's what these whitetail workshops are for. They're to teach people how to kill deer no matter where you go hunting. It's These are not land management uh workshops these are strictly teaching people how to go any place and put themselves on the best animals the property has to offer in a natural setting that's that's awesome uh i know that if i was in michigan or you know in one of the locations where you were doing one of these workshops i would definitely be there well last year i had people come from florida georgia north carolina pennsylvania new york wisconsin indiana illinois uh ohio I had Kentucky. I had people come from all over. I was shocked, actually. <laughs> well, you should have just said California, Hawaii, and Alaska were the only places where they didn't come. Because no, I think you named every other state. <laughs> if they were coming from Hawaii, I'd rather go there. <laughs> they were yeah, fun. I enjoyed, I enjoyed them. I, yeah, especially in February when it's freezing in Michigan. Yeah. Yep. I, I enjoyed doing those workshops and I I got some great feedback. Some of the people went out that last year, last fall, and killed the biggest bucks they've ever shot. Several several of the people did. And and they said it had a lot to do with the workshops. And it's on scent control and it, we talk about harnesses. We talk about everything. Everything to do with deer hunting. Excellent. Scott, what do you have for John before we let him go? I just want to thank you so much for coming on to talk with us, John. It was uh, a pleasure, and I can't My wait pleasure, to do it Scott again. And Greg, absolutely. Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta echo what Scott said. Um, like I said just a minute ago, you know, thank you so much for for giving us, you know, hour and fifteen minutes of your time. It's been, uh, it's been great learning kind of the some of the saddle history and 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 how you go about your thought process for. For saddle hunting i know i've taken quite a few nuggets away and i know that the the those listening right now that they're going to definitely be better better saddle hunters because of it so i certainly appreciate you coming well, on you. and i cannot wait for the time for the you know the next time we get to do another episode with you well i appreciate the opportunity guys and don't forget leroy leroy started it all <laughs> <laughs> I you know, I was going to say, next time you're going to have to have a story to top that. I don't John. think I can top. I'll never be able to top the Leroy stories. <laughs> no, Leroy was a special <laughs> di- type of guy. <laughs> Good old Leroy. Good old Leroy. The okay, Nate John. <laughs> and we're going to let you go, John. Okay. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you, guys. What a great conversation with John Eberhart. I love talking to the guy on the phone. Every time that I've ever talked with him, I have taken some sort of of wisdom nugget away that has just made me a better hunter. And something that I kind of wish we had talked about, uh, Scott, and we'll have to make sure we do next time we talk to John, is, is you know, he's kind of a monster when it comes to postseason scouting. So that's something I, I want to dive in in our next conversation. Yeah, he, he's definitely an expert on that. And we'll spend a whole other episode talking just about that. So I look forward to that. Um, I actually have a quick story about uh, postseason scouting experience last weekend. Had a, uh, a really nice looking spot kind of out on a little peninsula. Um, it was really, really tough to get to. Um, if you're trying to go there in the fall, it's really almost impossible to get to unless you take a boat to get there, ca- canoe, kayak, whatever. 
but um, like it's just so thick and the weeds is so big. So I ha- haven't gotten to hunt there. Haven't really gotten to scout there. So last weekend I put this time aside to do it. I get out there. I'm like crawling through the brush and over logs, under cat briars, you know, whatever. But it's good. I'm seeing like no, no um, buck, big buck sign in particular, but I'm seeing lots of deer signs. So I know, I know it's a good spot, a good area to go hunt. And then I'm getting out kind of towards the end of the peninsula and I stumble upon um, a camera hanging over a big bait block and I look over to the left and I I see a blind. And at the time I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, these people, they don't even realize, like if people want to hunt over bait, that's fine. I'll do some um, deer management hunting over bait. So I'm not judging on that. But I'm like, this is a great area. There's no reason to be baiting this spot. Like, there's tons of deer sign around. So that just, that kind of got me. Yeah, so that's I, I, frustrating. I, yeah, that was a little frustrating. So I walked over, I just took a look at the blind, and there was one hole poking out of the window of the blind. So to me, it appears that they are only gun hunting out of that spot, out of that blind. Hmm. So it still looks like a good area that I'm going to try out in the fall. I'll probably take my kayak in there and I'll, I'll head back probably within the next month or two and set up a couple trees over there and uh, I'll give it a shot. Cause like I said, there was a lot of deer signs, so it's got a lot of potential. No, that's good, man. I hope, I hope that spot works out for you. I love those hard to access spots, especially when you can go by boat. It's one of my favorite ways to hunt. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, and that wasn't actually even the best spot of the day I found. I found another, spot on a, a point that had a that had some big buck signs so i'm pretty excited about that that's awesome awesome it's great man uh gets you pumped up for next season already absolutely yeah well we need to wrap it up we have been yammering on for a long time but before we go i definitely want to talk about the 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 sponsors the the companies that are making uh saddle palooza supporting saddle palooza Arrow Hunter, uh, Ernie's Outdoors, Wild Edge, Stealth Outdoors, Hawk Hunting, Bullman Outdoors, Briar Precision. Those companies have all donated to Saddle Palooza. So if you're coming to Saddle Palooza, you are in for a treat. I can promise you. They have all donated uh, some incredible products. Uh, I know we're going to have at least one Kestrel <laughs> as a giveaway, at least one, maybe more. Um, Ernie's Outdoors, he's donated multiple platforms. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. Some people are walking away with those. Wild Edge, a complete set of steps, Wild Edge steps, uh, as, as well as some other stuff, some aiders and, and, uh, and tethers and all kinds of stuff from Wild Edge. Uh, and then Stealth Outdoors, the Lou with Stealth, who makes Stealth Strips, he gave us a whole bunch of stuff too to give away. Hawk hunting, they gave us a whole bunch of hats. Everyone that comes to Saddle Palooza is going away with a hat from Hawk hunting. Bullman Outdoors, they've given us a silent approach system and Briar Precision. He's uh, just a member on the forum and he's donated a few posts uh, to make custom saddle hunting platforms. But I got to tell you, uh, I was in Michigan uh, a week and a half ago or so, and I'm driving through the through you know, the middle of nowhere, Michigan, uh, headed back to the airport to catch a flight the next morning. And I get a call, uh, on my phone that I didn't recognize the number, but it popped up as a Michigan number. And, and I thought, you know, maybe it was where I just left. I was having a meeting and I thought, you know, maybe I left my wallet or left something back there and they were calling me to let me know. So I, I called, called the number back and I was like, you know, Hey, this is Greg. I just missed a call. 
And turns out it was Lou from Stealth Outdoors. He had been talking with one of our members, Ernie Power, uh, and uh, they were they were talking about some custom stealth strip applications. And and Lou goes, "Hey, you know, I sponsored Saddle Palooza, and I got to get Greg uh, that merchandise because it's coming up here pretty soon." And he said, "But Ernie, I've I've lost his his number. I, I don't know how to get a hold with him." And so, you know, Ernie gave him my phone number and, and, and Lou called me just out of the blue. And and so we talked that over and had a laugh and, and, and I said, Hey Lou, you know, where do you live in Michigan? It just so happens, you know, uh, that I'm in Michigan right now, headed to Detroit to catch a flight. And, you know, where are you? And he says, you know, he told me that the name of the town and I said, you know, wow, I think I just passed a street, uh, you know, a road sign for that town. I think I'm pretty close to you. He said, where exactly are you? And I said, I'm on such and such road at this exit. And he goes, no way. You're like 10 minutes from my house. And uh, he said, why don't you just swing by now and I'll give you all the stealth strips you could ever want. And and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And he said, oh yeah. And by the way, you know, when you get to the house, just come around back. I'm in the ice shanty on the lake. Um, um, uh, uh, what did he say? I'm stabbing Pike. And I'm like, I don't know what in the world that means, but I'm going to go over there and figure it out. So I, I drive over there. He shoots me the address, drive and go around the back. He's in, he's on the lake. I'm from Georgia. I'm not used to walking on frozen lakes with weird little shacks sitting out on them. So I go into the shack and you know, obviously he met me out there before that. Cause I would have been kind of creepy walking into a, <laughs> a weird little ice shack. But so I walk in and we, you know, we introduced ourselves and kind of talked a little bit and we go in there. He's got the heater going and it was so cool. I'd never been in an ice shanty before, especially to, to spear pike. And so there's this giant hole in the ice. Scott, you may know what I'm talking about. I'm sure folks from up North know what I'm talking about, but it was very much a novelty to me. There's this giant hole in the ice with a heater going inside the shanty. And he's like, yeah, I just kind of hang out here and drink beer. And when a pike comes under, I stab it. And I'm like, Whoa, (laughs) this is like the stuff rednecks would do down South. This is awesome. (laughs) I would fit right into this. So we hung out for a while and uh, we didn't stab any pike, uh, but it was a great time. It was my first time ever doing anything like that on the ice. So that was cool. And, and, and Lou showed me through his production room and he gave me so much stuff for Saddle Palooza. So you guys are going to get some awesome stealth strip products uh, when you're there and even some other stuff that, that uh, he doesn't even sell anymore that he just had uh, available that are pretty cool products and stuff. So Lou is a great guy. And uh, you should definitely go to go check out Stealth Outdoors and and, and buy some of his stealth strips. That that is awesome. I, I love his products, first of all, but that story you can't make that up. It was crazy. I mean, of all the times to get a call from the guy, and I was like ten minutes away. It was nuts. Yeah, I've never been to Michigan before in my life. That is the first time I'd ever been in the state, and the you know the first time I talked to him on the phone, I just happened to be right there. It's crazy. It was like it was meant to be. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, thank you again to him for the stealth strips for Saddle Palooza. Um, I'm really, really excited for next week, and more than anything, I'm excited to meet um, so many of our forum members in person. It's um, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, you're right. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'm super excited about it. We're going to have a fun time. We're going to shoot a lot of pigs, eat a lot of good food, and. And meet a lot of cool people, like you said. But I guess, uh, I don't know, Scott, if you don't have anything else for them, we'll probably just go ahead and wrap it up. What you have? 
uh, I guess we'll save it for the next episode. We gotta keep everyone wanting more, right? I guess so, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I guess we can end it there. And uh, thank you guys again for listening. It's always an honor that you guys choose to give up an hour or so of your time and listen to Scott and I ramble on. And hopefully you guys learned something from John. And uh, I know I certainly did. But uh, we'll, we'll definitely catch you guys on the next episode of the Saddle Hunter Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.